0: Welcome to another amazing episode of the Pace and Freedom podcast, now part of the Liberty Caster Network. I am your host, James Pace. This is where real conversations happen with no labels and no judgment. Check out my social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Subscribe, like, and share to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, and many other podcatchers. Today I have with me Connor Boyack, author of the Tettle Twins series, Children's Books, and we talk about everything that you should not discuss at the dinner table, such as politics, religion, and COVID-19. But before we get started, let's talk about Cash App and how you can get free $5 into your account. What is Cash App? With Cash App, you can send and receive money to and from family and friends for free. Get a free Cash App debit card and make purchases anywhere Visa debit cards are accepted. With Cash App, you can now buy and sell stock on the stock market. You can also buy, sell and use Bitcoin. To get $5 for free automatically onto your Cash App, simply use the code found in the description below when you sign up. Want more free money? Refer your friends and family. For every person that you subscribe, you get $5 for free onto your Cash App. Now enjoy this conversation. Today, I have as my very special guest Connor Boyack. Amongst his amazing curriculum is author of many great reads like Feardom, Latter day Liberty, and of course, my favorite, the series of Tuttle Twins children's books. And you know what? Connor, go ahead and tell us more.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me on. So, uh, my name is Connor Boyack. I grew up in California and now live in Utah. Um, I'm basically a full-time freedom fighter. I run a, a nonprofit that is in the business of changing hearts, minds, and laws in favor of freedom, and uh, that means a lot of public education, a lot of producing educational material, and then we actually draft and um, you know fight for and, and lobby for uh, uh, legal reform and changing laws. And we've changed dozens of laws and had a, a lot of fun doing it. So. Uh, that's kind of my full-time thing. I, I've written 21 books, uh, including the Tuttle Twins uh, children's series that you mentioned, and uh, really just passionate about uh, finding unique and and effective ways to uh, increase our freedom and, and fight big government.
0: There you have it. And, you know, I love it that you're a full-time freedom fighter, right? Uh, I like how you put that. Uh, it is your full-time job. For a lot of us, we have to do this more part-time. We we have kind of our full-time jobs where some of us, for example, for myself, I've been in the military for 14 years, got out, and I still kind of uh, work with the military in, in some capacity. And it, it's difficult for for some of us that have those type of jobs to kind of fight full-time uh, for liberty. A lot of people don't understand us, especially in those industries. How, for those that are awakening to uh, to libertarianism and the libertarian philosophy, how do they go about making it their full-time job?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, maybe the first way I'd answer that is, you know, like Ron Paul, uh, I remember I was a, a big fan of his presidential campaign and helped a little bit at the time, and he would always get young people asking him, you know, what should I do? And He's always like, I, I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> everyone's got their own kind of path in life, their own skill sets. And, you know, it's the, the fatal conceit to think that I know what other people should be doing. It's, you know, everyone has their own path. And I, I subscribe to that too. I, I frankly don't know that we need, you know, everyone uh, who's liberty minded, you know, working in this arena. Frankly, I think we need liberty minded people and, you know, uh, business and, you know, teachers and uh, all, all kinds of different sectors to uh, kind of spread out and 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 help. Uh, for those who are interested, um, I think the first thing is, you know, d- do you want to be effective or do you want to be kind of a sideline commentator? Um, it's one thing that, you know, you could get a radio show or start a blog or write a book and kind of spout ideas and be that person trying to like push the needle and, and get people to kind of wake up and think differently. It's another thing to say, I actually want to, you know, kind of change the law that requires diplomacy and building consensus and uh, shifting the Overton window, this concept of, you know, what is politically possible. Um, and, and can we kind of shift that by, by you know, moving the needle a little bit in a gentle direction in and, and favor of freedom? And, uh, and that takes a, a different skill set, different personality. A lot of liberty minded people are kind of the utopian perfectionist, my way or the highway liberty, you know, give me liberty or give me death uh, kind of people. And then you've got others who are more, um, I don't know if the word is pragmatic or um, kind of uh, incremental uh, rather than utopian. So it really kind of just depends. Um, I used to be a, kind of the bombastic sideline, flame throwing keyboard warrior, uh, <laughs> you know, on, on Facebook and so forth. And Um, decided that I got fed up with uh, just preaching to the choir and I wanted to actually make a difference and and change people's hearts, minds, and laws along the way. Um, And that required kind of a shift uh, for me. For those interested in kind of the think tank world, uh, which is uh, what I'm doing and what our organization is, there's actually a a kind of of right-of-center, libertarian, free-market-ish think tank in every state. And you can go to spn.org. That stands for State Policy Network, and uh, you can go click on the map, find the group or groups working in your state, and uh, you know reach out to them, connect with them, follow them, uh, learn what they're doing. If it's something you want to get involved with, you know start the discussion with them and see what their needs are and how you can help. Because uh, those are groups kind of working in in each of your communities uh, to to try and increase liberty at kind of the local state level, where I think we can all be far more effective than just you know shaking our fist at the the federal Titanic that's right. sinking and nothing ever changes. So um, I, would, I would encourage everyone to, to really kind of shift to the local and state level and, and spn.org is a, a good resource to find uh, who in your community is, is, uh, is working.
0: Yeah, and as I was saying before as well, when you're, when you're a libertarian and you're pretty much always, it seems like, it feels like you're always fighting against the grain. Um, just because of how much people are so dependent nowadays, with government or have been schooled to to think the way they think, and when you talk to somebody that is not a libertarian, they just they cannot. It's shocking to me how they cannot comprehend the the aspect of of libertarianism as far as being your your own sovereign they feel that they need to have somebody tell them what to do and they cannot see any other way and i guess where i'm going with this is when you're a libertarian that is working at a regular business or starting off your own business you want so hard to fight that grain and do what you feel is right but then you risk you know either losing business going to jail wherever the case may be I hear a lot of libertarians say, "You know you just need to do it, you just need to break the law to be able to live free what What is your opinion on that
1: you know i 'm always partial to a little civil disobedience, but uh, but I think it, you have to be very strategic about it. Uh, for example, just before we recorded this uh, podcast, uh, I was reading a, a news article of a woman in her mid 20s who uh, was giving a given a, a a ticket. She was booked on a charge thousand dollar fine uh, for uh, staging a, a protest in defiance of Governor Newsom's uh, shutdown order in California. And she had a whole bunch of people at this rally. This was in San Diego, and uh, and you know here's this passionate gal who's you know standing up for her rights. And yeah, she's going to get a lot of blowback from people, um, but she's going to get a lot of support too. And it's tough when you're in business because you kind of have to appease everyone. And if your boss is of a different political persuasion or you are uh, kind of a freelancer and you have clients and you don't want to alienate your clients. Um, so so it's tough. You know, those in business who want to speak out, the, if we believe in the free market, then we likewise believe in people's rights to, uh, you know, deny you their patronage and for whatever reason, right, uh, your religion, your politics, your, you know, how bad you smell or you know, whatever. Um, and so, you know, we, we should practice what we preach and uh, suffer the consequences uh, come what may. If, if we believe in something so strongly that we feel compelled to speak out um, despite the consequences because we feel that we must, then great. Uh, but for many, you know, I think they wisely uh, kind of keep it to themselves or, or, you know, maybe we need to go back to kind of the founding father style of using pen names for everything, right? Because even right. then, They were worried about repercussions, um, less so in the business sense and more so in the, you know, King George will behead me sense, uh, to, to revealing their identity, but, you know, create your own little online persona and have that be the pen name through which you, you know, write on medium or publish articles or tweet or, you know, whatever. So I I don't know. It's everyone's going to make that choice and it kind of depends on the issue, um, but I will say that's what's very liberating about working kind of in the political sphere is that you don't have to hide your opinions. In fact, you get paid to act on them. And
0: uh, it is kind of a, a very liberating feeling. Right. So how did, how did you end up where you're at uh, being a libertarian? What's the uh, origin story? So
1: my origin story is I was invited to a movie screening. This was 2005 or six. Uh, for a documentary that had just come out called America, Freedom to Fascism. And uh, this was by the late Aaron Rousseau. It wasn't the greatest quality of documentaries, but it was very interesting. And it was his attempt to uh, portray how America had declined from its kind of idealistic, uh, classical, liberal, pro-freedom um, you know, initial position uh, to this kind of uh, corporate fascist, crony capitalist uh, socialist you know welfare system that we have now and so I'm in this little library I'm uh, with about 15 other people watching this um, you know this little film that had just come out I think uh, my uncle had invited me if I remember right and uh, and was this guy who was interviewed in it that made a lot of sense this elderly gentleman you know who who is this guy and the name on the bottom said you know congressman Ron Paul and so I, I Googled Ron Paul, and uh, that was the the beginning of a totally different trajectory in my life. At the time, I was a web developer. I was uh, just graduating college at Brigham Young University. And uh, I was just kind of a computer nerd who had kind of this very uh, uh, you know, nascent uh, developing interest in American history and and, and politics, uh, but it was very minimal. And, and so I found Ron Paul, and I went and I Watched a ton of his uh, C-SPAN uh, videos of his um, his speeches. I grabbed a book of his, um, and uh, you know, just started consuming all sorts of stuff. And then, of course, he had a recommended reading list, which sent me down the rabbit hole in many different ways. And and uh, and that was kind of my Ron Paul was was basically the my main introduction to the the Liberty movement.
0: Yeah, you know, I hear that a lot. A lot of uh, Ron Paul really brought a lot of people into the movement. For myself, uh, I think for me, it took a little bit longer. And what it was is I started having these more libertarian ideas while I was in the military, as I got to meet a lot of people from different parts of the country, even uh, of the world, and realized that everything that was kind of taught to me was not necessarily, necessarily true. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I was raised uh, a neoconservative. conservative. My dad, my grandmother, the whole family were just conservative Republicans. And we would watch Sean Hannity every night and they would be yelling at the TV and cheering him on. And it was just, I, it was funny because I grew up with that, but I never really felt comfortable with it. And it wasn't until I joined the the Navy and I started meeting other people, I started realizing, wow, you know, I, now I, I kind of see. And when I typed in on Google, the things that I believed in, that's how, you know, libertarianism popped up. And I kind of got hooked from there. Cool. Uh, I want to go into religion a little bit. So we talked before this recording and uh, you you and I shared that we we both have um, some origin in the LDS community. Your LDS, uh, an active LDS, for those that don't know it, uh, LDS is, is uh, Latter-day Saints uh, Church, uh, also known as Mormons. I believe the recently the presidency of the church doesn't want us using the word Mormon, correct, for LDS? Uh,
1: yeah, I guess they've shifted away from that a little bit.
0: <laughs> yeah, and uh, I was LDS from... 2010 to uh, roughly 2015. Uh, and the reason I kind of started leaving it is because of the whole not feeling comfortable being a libertarian around a, a lot of people being more conservative and uh, not really feeling accepted, I guess. How, how do you do it? Uh, is it just different in your community or for you it doesn't really matter they're kind of two independent things how how does that work for you
1: um you know my my political views and my religious views are very intertwined um i i basically am libertarian because i uh, believe in jesus christ and because i believe have the the religious beliefs that i do i i believe the the bible and the scriptures really have a lot of relevance you know when jesus says Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and render unto God that which is God's. I don't think anything is Caesar's. I think it's all God's. You know, when he says no man can serve two masters, I look around and I see, uh, certainly within our own faith community, but broader Christianity, I see a whole ton of people bowing down to Caesar, just like the children of Israel saying, We want a king like unto all the other nations. You know, and God shaking his head and, okay, fine, you know, but he's going to enslave you, he's going to tax you. And, uh, oh, but we want it anyways, right? Like there's this human predisposition to wanting to be controlled, wanting to have uh, and, and to control others. And, uh, and I don't think that's anything within just the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, I look at broader Christianity and, and see many of the same uh, problems. I remember in particular with disdain when Ron Paul was in, his, uh, is in South Carolina part of the, you know, deeply uh, evangelical, Baptist, Christian, you know, type communities down there. And he's in this big stadium on the the stage for the Republican presidential campaign. And, uh, you know, they're talking foreign policy. And he brings up the fact that how would we like it if other countries did to us what we did to them? We should apply right. the golden rule to foreign policy. And, you know, these Christians who on Sunday or Easter or Christmas or whatever will you know talk about the golden rule or go you know read the scriptures or listen to the bible whatever uh they they booed him you know and, and that's not to say everyone who boo, booed him was a you know a very um faithful christian but you know given the demographics of the area i think it's very safe to assume that uh, uh quite a, a large majority of them were and and they're booing this guy on the stage who's saying you know that thing that jesus said i think it applies not just a, you know how we bring a casserole to Susie down the street, right. um, you, know, or when our neighbor you know's dog poops on our lawn and, and how we should handle that situation right it 's not just these interpersonal conflicts it 's also these indirect actions that we commit against other humans through government, which is just as right. people and uh, anyway, so I, I believe that my faith uh, leads me to certain political conclusions, and that is. You know, live and let live. It is, it is love. I, I don't believe you can love people through the state. I believe, I believe the state exists to institutionalize hatred uh, right. and control. And it is the means through which we boss one another around and steal from one another, right? Frederick Bastia, government is the great fiction through which everyone tries to endeavor to live at the expense of everyone else. Um, and so I think that's anathema to to my faith, to Christianity, to to what God has said. And so um, some people might see conflict between, you know, political views and religious views and have them in different buckets and, uh, you know, uh, come to different conclusions that way. For me, they're, they're, they're shared and, and fundamentally intertwined.
0: Right. You know, for me, the reason I kind of went independent, and I call myself an independent uh, Christian Mormon, and... Is just the kind of how involved churches, not just the LDS church, but all churches are with government, how they kind of mingle or uh, try to get their foot in with government to obligate other people that maybe not believe in the same values or principles to force them to believe that way. When an evangelical church lobbies to uh, end gay marriage or to prevent uh, the legalization of marijuana. And that was the kind of the thing I felt that I just needed to separate myself from from organized churches.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, there, there's definitely whenever you get uh, organizations uh, and concentrations of power, there's always opportunity for, um, you know, in some cases, abuse. In other cases, just people trying to impose their opinions on others and pass it off as official um, you know, I am one who happens to believe that just like God called prophets in the past, he calls them today. And that doesn't necessarily mean that just because uh, people are inspired in many situations that they are inspired in all situations. And I think that uh, some might view the leaders of their church as, as uh, whatever religion that is, as kind of infallible or uh, that their views have an elevated status. And I just, I, I don't think uh, that's not how I approach it. I think that uh, you know, we need to still apply reason and seek our own answers and,
0: um, you know, kind of to each their own in a lot of ways. Right. Now with the LDS church, I mean, there there is this strong belief within the members that pretty much anything that the prophet says, the presidency says, or, you know, the apostles uh, say goes. I see them all as still humans they're still imperfect. Yeah, they they might receive some inspiration from God, but to say, you know, to follow them blindly is like for me it's equivalent to following government blindly as a lot of people do. They in how they treat these two parties where they treat them as uh religions and as a, essentially a, a cult uh where they just follow President Trump blindly in everything that he says even though in their heart of hearts they know that is, it's wrong what he may be saying um, they just blindly follow it uh, and then the same thing with you know the Joe Biden followers or the Bernie Sanders followers so I guess where I'm going with that is for members of any religion that are so blindly following these um, leaders that doesn't don't the leaders have an obligation to kind of be a little bit more humble and say, not every, I'm not perfect.
1: You know, that's an interesting question. I, I think certainly the political figures love kind of being worshiped. I mean, Caesar wants worship uh, and wants adoration and wants support and power. And, and certainly, you know, the historical Caesars, but, but the Caesars of our day as well. I, I think it's, natural for people to want that type of attention and affection. And so I think it's a rare political character who's willing to kind of say, oh, no, you know, don't, don't support me like that. And I mean, even right now in, in my state in Utah, there's these kind of interim elections going on where people are seeking election to be kind of the presidential elector and the national delegate and the this, that and the other. And it's obscene. It's all these people. I stand with President Trump. You know, I've supported Trump since the beginning and they're like bending over backwards to outcompete the degree to which they stand with our president Mm -hmm. um, and and completely abandon, you know, any fidelity to principles or any nuance of like, well, I don't like these 18 things that he did, but all these other ones are okay. You know, like it's just all or nothing. And uh, it's unfortunate about our political process and kind of the incentives that are in it to induce that type of behavior. Um, frankly, I, I think we would uh, be better off seeing people like you suggest who are like, "Hey, knock it off, but I fear that uh, this, this this system that 's set up and the the nature of the state is such that when power is so consolidated and there 's a lot at stake, depending if your team wins or not, you know those are very strong incentives that lead you to do things that you otherwise might find despicable, especially when done by other people but you know, you feel kind of compelled to do it because of what's at stake and you, you know, lose a little bit of your soul, I think, along the way, but, but incentives matter and they work. And I think we certainly see that in the political process
0: too. Right. Uh, So your organization lobbied for medicinal marijuana in Utah, and that's awesome. But there was a struggle, right? There was hurdles because of Utah being a more conservative state, a more, I guess, Family, I don't want to say family oriented because I don't, but that's what you hear when you hear about this kind of stuff. Yeah. More for the drug war state. So, what were kind of the struggles that you ran into getting marijuana legalized in Utah?
1: Um, you know, much like you just mentioned, a very socially conservative state is, is reluctant uh, oftentimes to uh, support any type of drug legalization or decriminalization to, to look soft on the war on drugs. Um, and so, uh, that, that was a struggle for us in the early years, pushing back against that cultural narrative, uh, this kind of religious sentiment that, you know, unless it's FDA approved, you shouldn't take it. Illegal drugs, you know, are inherently bad. And, uh, and so it was tough. It was a multi-year campaign on our part to be able to, um, get enough support, uh, to, to do this. Our, our church, you know, lobbied against, uh, our bill. I was I was the foremost uh, ringleader in our state fighting against my own church, uh, and in a state where the church is extremely politically influential, uh, given right. that its members believe that you know its leaders speak for God. I mean, how do you? That, that's kind of the ultimate political trump card, right? To, like, right? Well, God wants this, therefore you know you better all do it. So it's hard to argue against that. But ultimately, what happened was we were able to build enough political consensus, uh, in our state, uh, by going and doing an initiative and getting signatures and the polling increased. We shared a lot of very heart wrenching stories of people who needed it to kind of claim the moral high ground, right. And say, this is the right position. If you're against us, then you're cruel. And, um, you know, and so we were able to kind of go out in the public and do that with enough momentum, um, that it led to, um, negotiations with the opposition, including uh, the LDS church, and we were able to uh, kind of force a compromise and right. make sure that we were able to all get on the same page. We we got a lot of what we wanted and um, it ultimately led to kind of a good resolution uh, that allowed us to move forward. And now we have a functioning medical marijuana program and, uh, you know, a lot of people are, who
0: are very well served by this medicine that they needed. Absolutely. Do you think that your organization will seek to uh, legalize it recreationally or you think, you know, uh, I, don't
1: think I was going to get there anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I, I can see us doing other things like deprioritizing uh, certain drug enforcement. Right. So maybe not an all out decrim, but just say, you know, don't, don't prioritize your effort on, you know, uh, marijuana enforcement, things like that. Um, there may be some some openness to to basically moving it to the bottom of the the police totem pole, um, but you know, I, I don't I don't know that uh, that Utah is going to be there for quite a long time to come in terms of uh, you know having that more liberal
0: laissez-faire approach. <laughs> so they'll probably be the one of the last states holding out then.
1: Uh, one of them. I mean, you know, we're, we already have medical marijuana, and there's still a bunch of uh, other states that don't even have that. So. Yeah, true. So, so maybe we'll we'll be ahead of a, at least a few people.
0: Yeah. <laughs> what was the church's reaction to, you know, one of their own members kind of going against the the grain?
1: Um, you know, I was often asked by folks if I had, you know, any kind of disciplinary uh, action against me or any uh, repercussions, and I didn't. Uh, you know, there were, frankly, a lot of very conservative, uh, active members of the church who were vocal in their support. So th- there was no, um, there were no problems. You know, it's, it's never fun to have to oppose leaders of your own church like that. But again, where it kind of ultimately worked out uh, for the best in the end, I, I think it kind of shows what the political process can sometimes yield, what diplomacy can yield. You know, if we were unwilling to negotiate with them, if they, we were just, you know, beating them up in the public square and my way or the highway—that could have, you know, led to a bad result for, for both sides. And so, right, uh, we're we're kind of happy with with how it ended up.
0: I, I want to go kind of on the other side of the spectrum as well. You know, when I tell other fellow libertarians that I'm uh, a Christian or even a Mormon, they cringe, right? They uh, like, there's there's no way you can be a, a true libertarian. Then, have you gotten that kind of reaction as well from the other side? Um, no,
1: I mean, I I don't really get that, uh, you know, too much. It's, it's something I know that arguments out there, but it's not one I've had to kind of deal with that much myself.
0: Any possibility of you seeking a, an office at some point? Um, (laughs)
1: I'm, I'm often, uh, asked. Um, but you know, in my role as the kind of a think tank, uh, you know, lobbyist kind of person, I, I can focus you know, laser focused on the things that I want to and um, get, you know, just the things that I want done. Whereas, uh, you know, if I'm elected, I have to deal with constituents. I have to be on committees I don't really care about. Um, You know, I've got to kind of burn a lot of my time. And so like in my role right now, I work with a ton of elected officials who, you know, champion our, you know, issues and we we get it done. And so I, I feel like, Right now, in a lot of ways, I'm kind of more influential and effective than I would be if I ran for office. Um, so, uh, as fun as it sounds, and you know, maybe for kicks, one day I'll I'll do it. it it's not in the current plan.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, you know, and I think in your position, it must be a a lot more effective because you're seeking out kind of the commonalities, right, of the different political spectrums and. I imagine it it takes uh, on top of that diplomacy to really get people that may not necessarily agree with you 100%, but that can agree on some core uh, issues and get them to help, help you get that into the stage. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's like these Tuttle twins, children's books, we were talking about, you know, people, tons of people read these books now who, who aren't libertarian. They don't consider themselves libertarian. They they'll call themselves conservative or classical liberal or moderate or independent. But you know, here they are reading, basically like distilled down libertarian (laughs) ideas with their kids. You know, I mean, one of our books full on teaches anarchism (laughs) like uh, to an eight year old. You know, like we're talking about voluntary government versus persuasive uh, versus coercive government and. Murray Rothbard and the, you know, uh, Anatomy of the State, and uh, and you know, uh, so so I think you can have a lot of success in gently leading people along. um, Who you know, you meet them where they're at, and then you see if you can gently persuade them. I mean, it's like when I was a you know missionary. uh, You know, I didn't go around criticizing other people's religious views. I didn't shame them and tell them they're wrong and they're going to hell. That's not exactly the best way to have a dialogue. And uh, persuade people and share with people who, you know, you want to be receptive, to have a com- fruitful conversation, even if nothing comes from it. And, uh, you know, you you kind of build on, you have to have a relationship of trust. You find commonalities. You say, well, what, what do we believe in that's the same? Oh, that's great. Tell me your perspective. And, oh, well, here's mine. And how did you come to that? And so on and so forth. So I feel like um, that's what a lot of people in the libertarian movement kind of miss out on is, is being willing to kind of be incremental, to be patient, to be pragmatic, uh, diplomatic, and uh, you know, be patient with people. Because a lot of us came to our views very slowly, right? We didn't, right. we weren't born libertarian, and and so we've had transitions. Why 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 wouldn't we allow for other people to kind of uh, have the same intellectual transition tren, uh, transition in our direction that we ourselves had? And so it's something that. I feel very strongly we need to always be trying to um, you know, be very tolerant of other people's views and, and find where we can agree. And in the political process, that's helpful because people are on a totally wide spectrum. And it's all about you know, taking your idea and, and adapting it or translating it to someone else's viewpoint and say, oh, well, you know, hey, uh, civil asset forfeiture, I don't think cops should be taking people's property. Hey, you know, Mr. Democrat, you care a lot about the disproportionate impact of criminal justice on minorities. Let me share with you how civil asset forfeiture uh, disproportionately affects minorities, how it's people of color who are getting pulled over way more and thus their property is being taken way more. And so when you can kind of adapt your views and something that is very principled libertarian to someone else's viewpoint, I think that's when you can be very effective.
0: Right. It definitely can be uh, difficult. You know, the reason I started this, this podcast, I wanted to create a platform where I can get people from the right side and the, and the spectrum and the left and bring them together or just talk, you know, individually bringing them together has been near, it's been impossible. And I've had more success talking to uh, conservatives than I have with, uh, with liberals, but I've had a few liberals on my podcast and I think I may not have changed their minds completely, but it has, I feel opened some doors for them to kind of look into and, um, Kind of expand their their horizons a little bit, and uh, I think we need to be a little bit more inclusive as a, a movement and you know as a the libertarian party the the big L where we need to find ways to to try to to bring people in. I know for me when I tried to to be more involved with the libertarian party it it really seemed like a exclusive club and to constantly be questioned how libertarian you are um, at least on the, on the big L side of the, of, of the movement. When it came to small L it's a little bit easier because people are a little bit more open and they, they're just all trying to make sure or all trying to just live their, their free life. Right. So.
1: Yeah. It's, it's uh, (laughs) I've been very frustrated with that too. I've never been a member of the libertarian party, but uh, kind of in the, just online libertarian, big L, small L communities—you definitely see uh, kind of all the infighting and the purity tests, and yes, uh, you know, minarchism versus anarchism versus whateverism, and you know, I, I guess I figure that I have a finite amount of time in life, and when I look back, do I want to have remembered fondly, if <laughs> possible? The time that I spent debating the the degree to which someone was you know libertarianly pure, <laughs> or do I want to have brought people into the movement? Do I want to have taught new people these ideas? Do I want to have you know gotten a thousand people to read the law by Frederick Bastiat? Do I want ten thousand people to read? Do I want a hundred thousand like I would prefer to be a missionary and preach the ideas that I believe, I guess a political missionary is what I'm talking about, than to sit in a group of people who already agree with me to find where we disagree. Right. <laughs> and, you know, some people, I guess, just have not come to that conclusion themselves and they want to be correct and pure and, and prove others wrong and whatever. I, I don't know to what end. Um, I just, you know, I, I have limited time in life and uh, energy to burn. And, man, I would love to actually increase, uh, you know, grow the movement and uh, introduce more people to these ideas, even if they only end up agreeing with 80% of them. Right. Um, you know, better that than, you know, a bunch of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's and, you know, Democratic socialists that are being pumped out of our public schools. I mean, there's work to do, people, right? Like, why are we nitpicking at one another? Let's go out there and actually, you know, compete for the hearts and minds of, of the people who are going to soon oppress us through voting, because they've been led to believe that, you know, they can and should. And uh, I, I just have no patience for it anymore.
0: So, we're kind of towards the end of our conversation here, and I really wanted to talk really quick. Uh, I think it's pretty important. One book that I've that I've read of yours is uh, feardom mm-hmm. um, and it almost seems like you pretty much predicted what was going to happen uh with this uh coronavirus how government just kind of and it's history right uh, you know it seems like we continuously repeat history mm-hmm. and here we are we have this coronavirus pandemic going on and government is really really milking it right they're using that fear and granted you know, this virus is a scary virus. Uh, I, I'm not one of those that, you know, thinks that it's all a hoax or this is just more than what it is. But there, the government has used the fear to really get things that I don't think they would have ever been able to get in uh, into law or into effect if it weren't for this coronavirus. Right. And uh, what kind of, I guess, things have you seen that is not coronavirus related that government has pushed in because I try to explain it to people and I don't think they really get it so
1: it's it's tough right because as you point out this has happened throughout history uh when I wrote Feardom it was by no means this like prophetic look into the future of the way it would be just in a few years after I wrote the book no like it was really just here's how it kind of always is right like we we get scared or uh you know, we're, we're told to be scared about some hobgoblin. And uh, then, you know, mighty government comes to the rescue and has the plan. And if only you'll, you know, let us, uh, you know, feel between your underwear and your jeans, you know, we'll be able to keep you safe. Uh, if only we can scan you naked, you know, and radiate your bodies, you'll be safe and, and on and on and on and on. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, like throughout history, and I mean, 9-11 was certainly one of the prime examples that I shared in, in that book, Feardom, because it right. was such a, a bold step forward for uh, losing our freedoms and the Patriot Act and so forth. And I think, as you point out, we're seeing it right now with, with coronavirus as well, the, the degree to which not only are people willing to support big government solutions, but I think unlike any other time in American history, uh, we've now seen uh, snitching right? We, we've seen not just like, oh, sure, I'll do this because I'm supposed to. Now you get kind of the Karens of the world out there, right? Which, by the way, <laughs> I feel sorry for anyone named Karen now because I know <laughs> it is like the, the perfect meme now to describe those types of people. And, and I apologize to all the amazing Karens. Maybe change your name or something because <laughs> now we live in a world of, of you know, Karens. And, and these people who are like, oh, I, I see someone over there insufficiently complying. They're not afraid enough. I'm going to call this hotline. I'm going to shame them online. And uh, this is kind of a unique development, I think, in American culture. And uh, I think social media definitely exacerbates it. And, uh, you know, it's very troubling to think. uh, Sure, like I don't think that, you know, World War III or a dictatorship or whatever is coming in the immediate future as a result of coronavirus. Uh, What I do feel like is the temporary measures that are being enacted right now Uh, though they will you know eventually expire the shutdowns will expire people will get out get back to work at some point um, i do feel that what is happening right now is that a precedent is being set right we are getting used to a certain way of things we are acclimatized to a new status quo that next time it happens and then a degree further it won't be perceived as that bold a step because oh, been there done that and life didn't end therefore you know the frog in the the pot of boiling water is used to that. So what's one degree more? Uh,
0: right.
1: So so that's the the concern. It, it's certainly born of of history. There's so so many instances in history where um, you know problems have either been exploited or manufactured. Uh, you know either there was this naturally occurring event that you know some never wanted to let a good crisis go to waste, or, or in other cases um, crises have been directly created and manufactured by those who want to then leverage a scared population's desire for safety um, at the expense of their liberty in order to consolidate power. So my, my book was an attempt uh, to say, you know, we need to kind of succinctly describe what this trend looks like if we're going to combat it, right? Because you can never win a war that you don't know is being fought. If you don't understand that there is a psychological war going on all the time, by quote unquote the powers that be, you know, by the establishment, the elite, the whatever you want to call it. If you don't understand that there are other people who want to control you at your expense for their benefit, uh, then you've already lost. And that's not to say this is some Alex Jones conspiracy and the trilateral commission is out to get you, you know, and they're worshiping a big owl and sacrificing babies and all, like I'm not saying any of that kind of stuff. I'm talking in a very reasonable way to say. History informs us very clearly, if you're willing to give it even a cursory review, um, that people respond to incentives. And when people in power want to retain that power, um, they then want to expand that power. And how do you do that if the population is unwilling? Well, you appear to have a plan. You appear to be uh, a savior. You look at Governor Newsom in California right now. He is the top governor of all the states with many not far behind that has had a massive surge in popularity. Right. He was polling in the 40s before uh, coronavirus. Now he's polling in the 80s. Uh, most of the other Democrat governors have also seen 20 to 30 percentage point spreads, increases since before coronavirus because everyone is now oh, we need the strong man. We need the, the person with the plan. You look at Bush before 9-11 versus Bush after 9-11, right? People right. You know, couldn't stand him. His polling, his favorability ratings were low and all of a sudden something bad happened. Therefore, you know, I like him. You look at the polls about trust in government and I, I share this stuff in, in Feardom in the book. Um, you look at the polling numbers of, of government and trust in government and it's always rock bottom. But then after a crisis happens, it skyrockets. Literally, that's happening right now. You look at the poll numbers about favorability and trust in the like the CDC, right? Uh, and it's, it's just mind-blowing to see that when people are scared, they're willing to trust authority. And authority knows that. People who aspire to to have authority over others, they understand how this works, even if only subconsciously. And and that trend, that pattern over time, repeats, it increases. Um, and so, again, if we don't even know this is happening, we've already lost. Uh, but the, the first uh, part of the plan is to simply understand that this is even happening. It's uh, it, I think it's uh, incumbent upon all of us to, to kind of wake up and realize what uh, what is happening around us before we can actually respond to it and prepare our families, defend our freedoms, whatever you're called to do, you know, the first
0: step is to to wake up. Right. You know, I I really find this kind of a perfect opportunity for libertarians um, to really shine and really move forward further than ever before with the libertarian movement. Uh, You would think anyways, with, not government shutdown, but business shutdowns and stuff like that, you would think that we would encourage more businesses to, to rebel and stay open and anyways. Uh, you would see a lot more businesses opening and def- defying uh, governor, governor Newsom. And uh, we're just not seeing it they They're willing to go into bankruptcy or worse right. just to, uh, to quote unquote quote stay safe, and it's it's just mind uh, blowing right because you can and I was trying to explain this to somebody today. you can still run your business and be safe, right what's the extra step to sanitize your your workspace and uh, you know maybe limit numbers a uh, number of people at a time in your business, limit hours whatever you need to do, right, but not put yourself into the mercy of the government. Um, It's just kind of mind-blowing.
1: Yeah, I I think definitely um, it is a good time for libertarianism, especially like even stuff like homeschooling, you know, it's, uh, I was reading the poll earlier showing uh, that the interest in homeschooling has skyrocketed now that people have been compelled to kind of experiment with it, right? They're like, oh, well this isn't so bad and my kids kind of like it and we've kind of figured out a routine that works. So, um, you know, there there are dark clouds out there uh, for sure uh, economically or, you know, health reasons as well, but there's silver linings too. And uh, I'm one who tries to find opportunities and everything happening. Uh, it's not to kind of discount or, or disregard the bad uh, that we're trying to all get through. But, Um, I do think what's happening right now does present some opportunities. I think it does afford us many examples of big government run amok, of central planning gone wrong, Um, especially when you have kind of the the placebo uh, countries out there who aren't doing these full shutdowns, you know, and it's going to be very interesting to compare data and say, why did we ruin our whole economy? We didn't need to.
0: Right. And
1: uh, it remains to be seen if we'll kind of, you know, challenge and, and hold accountable those who were at the helm. Um, I think history teaches us that that rarely happens. Yeah. Uh, you know, we don't often throw the bums out as, as often as we should. But um, but no, for those who care deeply about these, these ideas, at a minimum, they present an opportunity to talk to our kids about what's happening in the world, help them understand these trends, help them have a mindset uh, that will prepare them for the future challenges that are going to come. There's going to be future problems. We're going to get through this one and and what better a time to sit down as a family and and talk about what's happening in the world and, uh, you know, the destructive mindsets and ideologies and plans and so forth uh, to help, you know, wake up our kids and help them have a, a better kind of perspective on the world and, and those who are trying to, you know, control them. Um, right. I, I think it's something that we all ought to be doing. And, and that's, you know, part of the reason I started writing the Tuttle Twins books was to, facilitate some of that dialogue and help, you know, parents have some of these deeper conversations. So I've seen a lot of it happening just in people who are already kind of families in our network of of reading these books and stuff. It's been awesome to see the questions that kids are asking and they're curious. And if we kind of equip these parents with the right, you know, vocabulary and the right
0: uh, materials and stuff,
1: you can have some amazing conversations along the way.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. I mean, as I said before, my my daughter loves the Tuttle Twins. I'm planning to buy some more of those books for her. Uh, she's read The Golden Rule and um, I believe it's uh, Show Business.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say we've got 11 books now uh, total at this point in our children's series, and I guess for the listeners, since, since you know, uh, each of our books is based on an original book, uh, so we basically take like libertarian classic, you know, books and and essays and so forth and turn them into. Children's versions and, and not necessarily just libertarian, it could be like Austrian economics and stuff like that. So, you know, we've got uh, The Law by Bastia, we've got uh, Economics in One Lesson by Hazlitt, Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, uh, The Road to Serfdom uh, by Hayek, we've got uh, uh, A Foreign Policy of, of, of uh, Freedom by Ron Paul, uh, which is where we talk about the non aggression principle and the Golden Rule. Uh, we've got uh, the real history of underground ed- uh, uh, education by John Taylor Gatto. Uh, I mentioned uh, the Murray Rothbard book Anatomy in One State. So basically, we take these like these these impactful, deep, profound books and and turn them into children's stories to convey the same ideas. And then at the end of the book, we say, "Hey, if you like reading this, you know, go check out the the adult version upon which this is based." So the parents, you know, you can right expose them and and get them to keep reading if if they're new to this issue. And I can't tell you how many parents, I mean, literally uh, at least every other day, if not more, we get a message from a parent saying something to the effect of, oh my gosh, I (laughs) learned more in those books than I ever learned in school on these types of issues. Like this all made sense to me. It never made sense before. And now I get it. Or now I've learned all these like economic concepts that I never was exposed, like all the time. And I'm just like, You know, here's the failure of the public education system on display. And, uh, you know, these parents are never going to go read, you know, economics in one lesson if you give it to them for Christmas. But if you give them a little kid's book that they can, you know, read a fun story with their kids, have a shared bonding moment and learn together, man, they gobble it up. And and I think it's great, right? Because I think that's one way that we can kind of grow the movement and get more people uh, learning about and believing these ideas.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, I even thought about it. I thought about sending the, the Tuttle Twins to a bunch of people that I discuss libertarianism with. And maybe uh, it'll help them, you know, <laughs> along the way. Yeah, for sure. uh, go ahead and give a, a plug in. How can people find you? Um, and what can they do to, uh, to help you spread the word of liberty?
1: Well, thanks again for having me on. Um, you know, TuttleTwins.com, uh, T-U-T-T-L-E. PuddleTwins.com is the best way to find the books. You can get the whole set and free workbooks and a discount and everything else. And so for listeners who uh, don't yet have them, I encourage you to go pick them up for your kids, grandkids, neighbors, whoever. Uh, You can find me at ConnorBoyack.com. That's Connor with an O. Uh, Or you can just Google Connor Boyack and you'll find uh, where we are. If you're interested in, again, kind of a think tank in your state, I would would again point you to spn.org. Uh, to find the the group in your community, reach out, connect with them. Uh, We need all the help we can get to overturn some of these stupid laws, and and we need a lot more freedom fighters to to support. So I hope everyone
0: will kind of reach out and connect with the groups working in their backyard. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on. It was a great honor and privilege, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks for having me.